to learn that there was 2,000 years of complex metal trading in the northern indigenous communities in copper on Lake Superior and silver from cobalt was highly valued. It's been found in these extensive burial mounds all across eastern North America. So why haven't we been told the story? And how does our sense of Canada and our sense of who controls the resources change if we reintroduce the Indigenous history? That's Charlie Angus, Canadian Member of Parliament and author of a new book, Cobalt, about his hometown and the retelling of an historic mining boom. He's our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. As ever, I'm your host, David McGuffin. Today's conversation is a journey into northern Ontario and the often divisive history of mining up there. Charlie Angus's new book, Cobalt, is a fresh look at a town and its silver mining boom of the early 1900s that he says changed not only Canadian mining, but how mining has been carried out around the globe ever since and not always for the better. Charlie Angus is the longtime New Democratic Party MP for Timmins, James Bay. 5,000 feet down the number three shaft, but a high grade starts to pay. And as we got into at the start, he's also the frontman for Grievous Angels, a Canadian band that was alt-country long before alt-country was a thing. It's a fascinating talk, and before we get into it, Here's your regular reminder to help support quality independent journalism in Canada by subscribing to the award-winning Canadian Geographic magazine. And you can do that by just going to canadiangeographic.ca forward slash subscribe. I also want to throw in a quick teaser here. As many of you might know who follow me on Twitter, I've been doing some cold water plunges into lakes and oceans in the last couple of months. It's for an exciting ice plunge challenge that's in the works It's a fundraiser for Canadian Geographic and this podcast specifically, and it's going to involve some big names, including our top explorers, many of them guests on this podcast. We're still working out the exact details, but we'd love to get you involved. So please watch this space and the Canadian Geographic website and our social media feeds at CanGeo for more information. And now on to Charlie Angus. I can call you Charlie. Call me Charlie. Okay, great. I'm David. I also just interviewed for this podcast Dave Bedini, so I feel like oh. I'm, <laughs> I feel like I'm working through my early 1990s Peterborough concert going right now. So. Yes, well, I think if you'd asked him, he would have told you probably the first time they opened up outside of town was uh, opening up for us at the Kent Hotel the night we opened for the Dead Kennedys in Toronto. So no way, Dead Kennedys! Wow, yeah. that's amazing. Wow, yeah. I feel like I saw you in Peterborough. Oh, we lived in Peterborough. <laughs> Did you, so the Red Dog Tavern, would that be right? The Red Dog with the Grievous Angels, uh, yeah, Trent, yeah. Trent with L'Etranger. Yeah, no, it was definitely Grievous Angels. And I, I, yeah. I remember I was, I sort of lived at the Red Dog, so you may have yeah. lived in Peterborough. <laughs> I was a, a big um, Washboard Hank fan at the time. Yeah. I, I sang with Washboard Hank uh, recently in a bar in Timmins, and we sang Stompin' Tom's Fire in the Mine, so... Ah, no way. He's still going strong, huh? Yeah, he's he's awesome. He is amazing. He is amazing. There's so many great songs he's written. He deserves more attention, I think. I know, I know, I know. I think because he's, he's so funny, people don't take him seriously. You yeah. Know? yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, he did that great Stompin' Tom tribute song way back when. But he also did um, that, The Midnight Ride of Red Dog Ray is just a classic Canadian oh, song. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 
Anyway, we're here to talk about books. Okay, yeah. First of all, do you want to introduce your book to me? Tell us the name of the book. Well, my eighth published book is um, Cobalt, Cradle of the Demon Metals, Birth of a Mining Superpower. And uh, it is a story, uh, an analysis, I guess, of the community of Cobalt, the mm -hmm. massive influence, the discovery of wealth that Cobalt had, and also where it belongs in a much broader discussion because we always compartmentalize our histories in Canada. Right. I'm just so tired of being told, all oh, these are quaint local histories. These are really global histories. These are histories of the Americas, the taking of the land, the exploitation of resources, what happened at Cobalt is being played out around the world. And I pretty much draw the links that Canada as a mining superpower today has so much of its roots in the battles and exploitation that took place in cobalt over a century ago. Yeah, and I want to dig into that because the the roots aren't necessarily great ones, are they? But um, I mean, this is this is your hometown that you're writing about, and this is very much a, a warts and all, as you suggest, history of, of cobalt and, and the history of mining around that. And one of the things I found really fascinating about your book was debunking this notion that the silver was just up there and the First Nations weren't doing anything about it. In fact, as you suggest, there's a, a very long history of First Nations and the silver loads there. Well, it's fascinating. In Canada, I think we're at a real moment of historic reckoning, uh, certainly with the climate crisis, the need to make reconciliation real. And the fact that we're confronting a history we never knew we had I mean, I grew up thinking, God, Canadian history is boring, it's quaint. And we used to tell ourselves, well, you know, Canadians, not like Americans, we don't, we just don't tell our stories as though this sort of modesty was this national badge of honor, mm -hmm. when in fact, we've carefully curated our history. And a lot of it is about, well, don't look there. That's not the real story. And I'm fascinated by the stories that have been left out of the history. And if you look at the history of the North, it begins with white guys discovering silver, gold, copper. Right. Uh, and it is always the story of, in Cobalt, it was this myth of this accidental discovery by a white guy that launches this. And this is the story that I've grown up with, I've heard my whole life. And then to learn that there was 2,000 years of complex metal trading uh, in the northern indigenous communities in copper on Lake Superior and silver from cobalt was highly valued. It's been found in these extensive burial mounds all across eastern North America. So two questions. One is, you know, why, why haven't we been told the story? And the second one is, how does our sense of Canada and our sense of the North and our sense of who controls the resources change if we reintroduce the Indigenous history so for me, uh, you know, as a historian, mostly f traditionally focused on working class histories mm -hmm. and, um, you know, the untold histories, reintroducing voices that should have been there in the first place is not just correcting the historic record. It's, I believe it's an inherently political act because it changes the conversation fundamentally. And it's the conversation that Canada is having today. Who controls the resources, the need to recognize Indigenous rights, has has transformed the whole discussion of economic development in this nation. And here at Cobalt was this extensive Indigenous trade that's been just erased from the history books. Yeah, it went on for thousands of years, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, incredible. And interesting, too, in your book, how there is a real sense among the First Nations that 
the dangers of European settlers discovering this, and there was an active attempt to to, to hide it from them, wasn't they? They knew what the the implications of them finding this silver load was. Well, yeah, there's there's some really interesting indigenous mythologies about the danger of sharing the wealth. Uh, the story of Nana Buju in northwestern Ontario, who was this protector of the Ojibwe people of the forest, and he gave them this great gift of silver, which was the silver islet mine, and warned them, never tell the white people. And the white people discovered the silver islet mine in 1868, and Nana Buju in the myth is turned to stone. Mm-hmm. And so we could say, oh, that's just old mythologies, but mining, white people history is deeply embedded with mythologies as well. And and their mythology is pretty accurate because right after Nana Buju was turned to stone, the Hudson Bay Company gives up its licenses, the prospectors, the, the lumbermen, the train crews flood into northern Ontario, and there's a massive uh, dispossession of Indigenous people. And we have records that uh, at the Hudson Bay Fort, right near where Cobalt was, that Indigenous people would go into the woods and and fashion bullets out of pure silver rather than pay the exorbitant prices uh, demanded by Hudson Bay. And Hudson Bay had no idea that just over the hills were these incredible silver deposits. So why why was that silence from Indigenous people? It's a fascinating story that I think a a much more uh, historical effort needs to be shone to try and learn more from the Indigenous perspective about what they knew about the value of their lands. And I'd also say Wherever you look at the great so-called mining rushes across Canada, there is almost always an Indigenous voice, an Indigenous key discoverer who's left out, who's mm-hmm. who's who's land, you know, who who basically has the claim jumped or who's denied the voice in history as the person who actually knew where the copper was or knew where the gold was. Mm. I mean, you mentioned the story even even when these stakes are being claimed and First Nations actually try and then take part in it as equal on the, as equals. There's, you know, there's, there's massive problems still. And is there, is it, is there a chief, is it Tonene that you mentioned? Yes. Yeah, the, the story of Chief Tonini to me is one of the, 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 the great untold tragedies because he is the chief of the Tomogamy people and he's desperately trying to negotiate with the federal and provincial government to protect his people's lands. They consider him to be this outrageous radical. They want the indigenous people off the lands to get at the, the beautiful timber wealth of tomogamy. So he tries all these efforts to negotiate a safe space for his people, and he finally realizes he can't. So he goes further north ahead of the prospectors and ahead of the trains coming in. And when he sees that the prospectors are moving steadily north, he stakes a claim on the shores of Larder Lake because he knew where the gold was, and his claim is jumped. And the history books credit him for starting the mining rush, but they never tell us that this chief, his claim was stolen. He had no power under the Indian Act to fight mm-hmm. for his claim against white men. And that mine, which became the Curradison mine, went on to become one of the richest gold mines in Canadian history. Staggering wealth came out of it. And Chief Tonini has ended up um, buried uh, in an abandoned, what became a dump site, completely forgotten. And if you look at the, the, the full cycle of the story, in the end, the town uh, loses everything. The investors leave with the money. People lose their pensions. This is a story that goes on into the 1990s of the, the dispossession of the people from this incredible wealth. And uh, so I really thought that that story of Chief Tonini is something to be 
told because these are more complex and more difficult stories about how the resources of northern Canada were exploited than simply the rah-rah history books that we were all given as, as, as kids. If we can just backpedal a bit, can you paint a picture of what that boom, that initial boom was like? At that time... Ontario was on nobody's map for mineral exploration. This is early 1900s, yeah? 1900, yeah. So 1900, they're pushing the railway through. And and mining then is is very much an American Western experience, Butte, Montana, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and then up the northwest coast of, you know, to Yukon. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a couple of initial discoveries of silver in the summer of 1903 silver that is so pure it just cuts through the cliffs like um like beautiful creeks of silver and there's no mining expertise there's no sort of knowledge of what to do with it and it ga- gathers the attention of new york so cobalt becomes an adjunct to the new york stock exchange almost from the beginning wow. and when people realize how much value there is Cobalt goes from being a few tents on the hills to this complex, multicultural, multiracial shantytown with live theaters, two professional hockey teams, um, people coming in from all over the world. So uh, from for me, the history of what really happened in this insane rush is really important, but it's really important to, to point out that this isn't just this romantic silver rush, the wealth of cobalt was so immense that it was like this high octane jolt that completely transformed development in Ontario, turned Toronto from an economic backwater into the world center that it mm-hmm. is today for mining uh, financing. People don't think of Toronto as a mining town. Well, if you're in the mining industry in Botswana or in Guatemala, you know that Toronto is the center. And it all goes back to this incredible wealth that came out of cobalt. And the other element that I think is fascinating is that who should benefit from that wealth was a major uh, political and social struggle at that time. And we've, we've, we've grown up with the winner's history of who won at Cobalt, but those other histories really deserve to be looked at in, a, in an age of, I think, uh, growing environmental insecurity and, and the rise of the 1% and the class resistance at, at Cobalt was fascinating. Can you elaborate more on that? Well, certainly the injustices faced by the, it was a very much a multicultural population at a time when the rest of Canada was very much Anglo-Protestant, Francophone, Catholic. The uh, abuse suffered by workers, the violence in the mines, you know, the, from the accidents. And the, the workers had revolutionary views of actually overthrowing the capitalist system, the Western mm-hmm. Federation of Miners, the Cobalt Miners Union. They, they had these radical visions that people should own the wealth. But at the same time, in Ontario, there were discussions because there was so much money coming out. Well, who should benefit? Should not the people benefit? And there was actually attempts to create publicly owned mines in Cobalt. They just put them in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. But if they'd put them in the right place... The whole development of resource extraction in Canada may have changed. It could have been something that was run by the public for the public. And we sort of forget that there's this tension about about the rights of of people to benefit from wealth, um, the exploitation they suffered, the massive exploitation that went on in cobalt um, against the underclass. And the resistance was really uh, powerful and and some fundamental changes happened because of the, the work of workers who were being fired, uh, deported, uh, evicted from their shanty shack homes, but standing up for worker rights. Uh, to me, there's there's a real powerful story of resistance in cobalt. 
But in the end, I mean, it was, as you say, the, it was the, the mine owners and the, you know, the, the, the dividend, the people collecting the dividends from those stocks and everything that, that wound up sort of dictating the, the, the future of, of mining. And, and just how did, how did that play out? Well, I think that it's really important to, to go back to the early 20th century where um, the power brokers in you know, what was then Upper Canada saw the North as a colony to be exploited. Mm-hmm. And that relationship of economic exploitation has remained essentially in place ever since. So the mm-hmm. struggles at Cobalt were the struggles of people who's, who believed that this was a frontier where a future could be created with the immense wealth as opposed to those who thought this was an immense wealth to be exploited and taken for the benefit of urban, multinational uh, uh, investors. And what comes out of cobalt is a whole, cobalt creates, the wealth of cobalt creates multiple new mining communities. Um, Timmins in the Porcupine, Kirkland Lake, Naranda, uh, Uranium City, Flon, Manitoba, they all come out of this incredible wealth. But what also comes with that is this model of, economic exploitation where these communities are established essentially as industrial outposts, industrial colonies where the wealth always leaves. Mm-hmm. The communities always are faced with uh, inadequate taxation, the protection of the corporate interests over the settlers, uh, and of course the complete disregard for Indigenous people has defined development in Northern Canada ever since. And it is a model that Canada's very powerful mining industry and Canada's federal government have tried to export to countries like Guatemala today, uh, Colombia, Papua New Guinea, where we see a lot of conflict with them, the mining giants of today fighting to, you know, maintain, to control indigenous land in that. And, and I'm not going off on a tangent here. Mm-hmm. I, I actually write in the book, how did we get from these little northern company towns like Cobalt to, you know, Barrick Gold in Papua New Guinea or mm-hmm. in Tanzania. How did how did that transformation happen? And and you can see the steps along the way that helped build a massive uh, resource extraction industry. And what wasn't being built at the same time were the benefits to the communities mm-hmm. and to the people. I mean, really, the the model from for Canada is very laissez-faire. Let them do what they want, low tax, and that's the model that Canada's brought to the world essentially. Yeah, I mean, Canada, it's funny, we see ourselves as the Boy Scouts of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to international mining, uh, we're notorious. When it comes to corporate uh, skullduggery, uh, there's a, there's actually a term for Canada. It's called uh, snow washing. I mean, the ability to, to launder funds in Canada is notorious. That 75% of the world's mining companies are registered in Canada. The vast majority of them are not mm-hmm. mining in Canada. They're registered because of the, the protections the corporate protections, the tax protections that exist. So how did all this happen? Well, again, we go back to the this massive amount of money coming out of cobalt at the same time as that early development is happening. There's this staggering level of stock fraud happening because the real money is not made in mines. It's made in speculation um, and stock manipulation. And it the rest of the world in you know the early 20th century in New York and London where the financial centers became very wary of Canadian mining companies because of getting burned so many times and that created the space for Toronto and Toronto was notorious they called it internationally Toronto was known as the Canadian problem because they were not going to uh, clean up 
the skullduggery in mining stock and fraud because of the great mythologies that, you know, the prospector who's selling you a bogus mining claim today may be the, the, the prospector who discovers the great mine tomorrow. And it's really ingrained in the Canadian regulatory framework of protecting uh, corporations and protecting the sort of endless boom-bust cycle that came out of cobalt. And uh, so we've had incredible uh, mining expertise around the world, but we've also had really outrageous stock frauds like Briax and Windfall and, and right. people who who've been ripped off time and time again. And these all go back to things that they learned in cobalt early. Like there's a lot of money to be made from stock and mining. Uh, and how do we make it so that this boom continues? And so it's it, it goes across northern Canada. It's gone across the world. It all a lot of those regulatory tool the toolbox of tax low tax super low taxes, regulatory protections, uh, corporate protections. They were all created out of that first cobalt boom. Do you see that changing now at all? I mean, here we are in the twenty first century, twenty twenty two. I mean, I mean, obviously this is over a century ago. We're talking about. I mean, what's the landscape like now? I think what's really exciting, uh, again, for Canada having its historic reckoning, is that Canada's having to come to terms with the issue of the Indigenous people who were mm -hmm. always there, who are never going to leave the land. It's changed the conversation about resource development. Um, it is forcing the Canadian business establishment to deal with issues like climate change because you, you see indigenous protest and youth protest on the streets and you also see some really good models uh, of projects that are moving ahead with uh, respect and with um, uh, agreements being signed with First Nations. When a mining company comes into cobalt today it sits down at the table with the descendants of the the actual people who are being dispossessed from the mm -hmm. first mining wave. I think that's really positive. Mining is going to continue. Uh, you know, in this search for the metal cobalt, we have to find it in, in a more sustainable way. I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from what's happened to even in cobalt today and in the north. These this push and pull to find a sustainable environmental uh, worker where worker rights are recognized. I mean, all this has happened in Canada. The issue is it's still not happening in the other parts of the world, and we have a part to play in that as well. I mean, one of the pieces of legislation that passed in the last parliament was the UN Declaration on the Rights for Indigenous People. And a lot, there's a lot of talk about prior consent, and you know, I think this is a bit of what you just were talking about. I mean, how important is that bill, do you think, in protecting the land? I, I think the, the the issue of the prior and informed consent of Indigenous people is mm -hmm. fundamental to developing development. And I also know that many people I talk to in the mining industry understand now mm -hmm. that um, to, to have security at a mine in terms of being able to go get investors, to be able to show those partnerships with Indigenous people is really important. And, and again, I think, you know, sort of settler society still doesn't quite get it. They think, well... Indigenous people just want to be cut in on the take. That's not what you see on the ground. What you see on the ground is still the fundamental concern for protecting the environment. They're saying, yeah, we need the jobs. Yeah, we would like you know, to our families to live better than they've lived on the, the total margins. But if it's done at the extent of damaging uh, our relationship to Earth, we will not support that. 
And it's, it's I think, the, the real story, and I, I talk about it in some of the mythologies about cobalt and the Indigenous point of view, is that the Indigenous people were never going to leave their land, no matter what happened. They were they saw themselves and they remain the guardians of the land. So this is, this is I think, where we can see in the 21st century a better way of reinterpreting the cobalt story, if we say the Indigenous people were always there, they will always be here. Uh, if we start to look at the issues of climate crisis, burning forests, melting ice, uh, resource exploitation. How do we do it in a sustainable way? Uh, you know, one of the myths I talk about is this myth of the rabbit and the lynx, and the rabbit is the indigenous and the lynx is the predator. And there is no future in the planet without without rabbit. Rabbit has will survive. Rabbit will sustain us. And this century belongs to to those who will create sustainability. And I think there's positive lessons to be learned from my book about those relationships, those relationships we never talked about in Canada, those relationships we never paid attention to. We thought we could just get by because we were nice guys. Well, we have to confront some of those darker stories in order to get to the light. I just want to touch on that, those boom years briefly because there were some kind of crazy incredible things that happened. And, and you point out that two of the founding teams in the National Hockey Association, the immediate predecessor to the NHL, were in cobalt and halebury and and poaching players from montreal <laughs> well you know it's it, one of the fascinating things i think it's why mining booms are so beguiling is that people who come there live extraordinarily large lives mm -hmm. and and recklessly large yeah it's part of the mining culture and that's why I, you know i love living in a mining community is people you know you know it's not sustainable but they're going to live large anyway so you had this community where people are working six nights a week in the mines. You've got eight live theaters going all the time. They're paying an enormous amount of money for hockey players. Um, the Cobalt Silver Kings um, wants to do this showdown, and they're they're poaching players from Montreal, from Ottawa. They paid Art Ross like $1,200, which was a staggering amount of money, mm -hmm. to play against the mine managers in neighboring Halebury. Um, and... At the time, they wanted, and this is because there's so much disposable mine money coming in. And so they're blowing the money on vaudeville productions, on hockey, and they want to play for the Stanley Cup. And the, the, at that point, it was mostly regional teams playing for the Cup. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't let Cobalt play for the Cup. So the mine managers thought, well, to hell with this, we'll create our own hockey league. Yeah. So they created the National Hockey Association that had Renfrew, it had Halebury, which is neighboring to Cobalt, it had Cobalt, and they needed another team. And so they started a team in Montreal called Les Canadiens. And so the Montreal Canadiens are funded from Cobalt money, and their first game is played against Cobalt. They're our most storied hockey franchise, but we forget that they were... They, this, was, this was money that was raised... I think for the for the amusement of of the silver miners and their bosses, and uh, created the Montreal Canadiens. Yeah, yeah, and the amazing thing it is boom bust as you say too. So from 1900 and by 19 early 1920s, this is all petered away. Is that right? Yeah, the the money is all gone by 1920-21. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of heartache in the collapse. Now the money did move to places like Timmins, which mm -hmm. you know, a century later, the mines are still massive, but. The end of the, the cobalt boom is, I think, really heartbreaking. And it's something we, again, we don't talk about. Cobalt was this fragile, multicultural, multiracial society. Mm -hmm. uh, it suffered 
enormous waves of backlash from you know the the economic and environmental crisis that it was facing just leading up to the first world war and in the first world war the targeting of immigrant workers the incarcerations the blaming of the foreign menace Mm -hmm. um, really is ugly uh, xenophobia and the cobalt miners union is struggling to get a deal for the workers at a time when you know the newspapers are saying you know, fire the foreigners, deport them, and the mm. the effort to keep the 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 workers together in the face of this xenophobia, I think, is one of the high points and one of the tragic points. But it also reminds us that you know multiculturalism that we see of as the great Canadian attribute. Right. It came from towns like Cobalt, and it was a fragile thing. And if you follow the development of communities like Cobalt, mm-hmm. there are waves of xenophobia and blame over the years. In the 1930s, in the mining communities, there was mm-hmm. a massive push to deport the Finnish population, who are seen as the, the alien other. And then it was the Italians, and the Chinese always suffered at different points. So these are parts of our multicultural history that I think it's it's not about blame. It's about knowing how we got to where we're at today and also knowing that sometimes this incredible flowering of, of cultures together, it can be fragile. And, mm-hmm. and it also builds a sense of Canadian identity because, you know, my family grew up in, in a very multicultural milieu. They, they grew up with a real openness. It's the one thing I love about mining towns. These are mm-hmm. open communities. This was come- Timmins? Yeah, Timmins. My, you know, my my family grew up completely multicultural in the foods that they ate, their their cultural references. They gave us an openness to the world that uh, I always remember my parents being so open to all, all, people from anywhere because that was the way it was in a mining town. And mm-hmm. so there are these beautiful moments um, of working class growth that happens because of the pressures people are under the pressures in the mines then the need to look out for each other to be friends to you know that the syrian and jewish population in cobalt they, they whenever the, they moved in the mining communities they tended to move together they yeah. because they had known each other in cobalt so you have syrian and jewish com- community there you go to kirkland lake it's their their families have moved there because they knew each other. These are these are actually really beautiful stories that we 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 didn't we don't know our histories because our history is always the story of the the famous white guy who founded this building or built that mm-hmm. hospital. I, I'm not interested in those histories. I'm interested in the the stories we haven't told because they are really profound and I think heroic and moving mm-hmm. and 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 funny and tragic. I mean, the Syrian immigration was something I didn't even really know about. I mean, I, I think of uh, Middle Eastern immigration to Canada as something much more recent, but that this is 1900, and there's a sizable Syrian community in Cobalt. Well, I, I really wanted to focus on the Syrian community because, again, recently we saw backlash with the, the refugees, and I saw people posting, you know, keeping foreigners out, and uh, I challenged a few people, and I said, you grew up here and you don't even know your own history? Look at all your neighbors who were Syrian, who who built who built the north mm-hmm. so you know 1900 there's a large syrian syrian influx into canada um and they play a huge role uh in development and cobalt the whole the so-called foreign quarter which was where uh, so much of the the bootlegging and the bordellos and the you know the shops uh, the syrians you know were really prominent on the main on the main drag in cobalt with all these little ice cream stores and uh, and there's amazing stories about how they came like you know like a 15 year old girl would leave her village near damascus and get on a get on a boat um, and then run out of money in marseille get off the boat have to work 
and then get to Ellis Island and then get a train to Montreal and then come up to Cobalt because she was told there was relatives there. Um, you know, yeah. these and are wild stories of yeah. how people came here. Yeah. Travels to the ends of the earth, really. Yeah. yeah. It's incredible. So tell me about Cobalt now. You've been living there for several decades now, right? What's, what's, what's Cobalt today? Cobalt's a very quiet town today. Um, I mean, there's a lot of holes in the ground. Um, you can't see any of the money anywhere. But it's a fascinating town because there's a there's a sense of memory and a sense of identity which I, which attracted me immediately. And I've always been fascinated by how people relate to place. People people know that this was something special and it gives them a special bond. Um, what I always love about Cobalt was when all the local mining companies, all the mines shut down uh, when I first moved there in the early 1990s. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was economic devastation to the region. And every every community in the region got a certain amount of money for an economic development project. And the other communities put their money in the local golf courses. And Cobalt put the money into the abandoned vaudeville theater that was completely nice. falling apart. It was the last of the seven vaudeville theaters. And I, I was on that fundraising team and people laughed at us and said, why is a dying mining town wasting its money on a, on a live theater? And we said, because we're going to create a generation of artists. Nice. And that live theater, despite COVID shutting it down right now, but that has been a center. And we've sent so many young people uh, into the arts, professional arts, because this little working class town has a top-notch live theater. So that's that to me is the spirit of Cobalt. It's like the odds are always against it, but it has a sense of a greater past. And uh, I love living in a mining town because people are just, there's a, there's a real, they're tough. They're very tough people. Uh, and you had to be to work in the mines, but there's a, there's a sense of humor and a sense of solidarity and a, and a love of history. So um, it's I, I, I moved to Cobalt. Not, I didn't have a job. I just fell in love with the place. And, and I knew there was a bigger story here. And I'm still finding what that story is, even though I've written all, the, <laughs> I've written all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. no, that's fantastic. Um, and again, a question I ask all our guests is, and it could be Cobalt, the answer to this, but can you describe a favorite place you have in Canada? Maybe a happy place you go to in a mind or a place you like to go to to relax and just describe that for us. Well, um, I've, I've had the great pleasure of being all across Canada mm-hmm. and I used to, as touring with the Grievous Angels and in politics. And, um, you know, I, I love this. I love Saskatchewan, the, mm-hmm. the great skies. I love Whitehorse. Um, uh, I've, I've loved being in on the Atlantic Ocean. But five minutes down the road from me, Cross Lake, is this haunting, strange place with the arsenic green beaches and mm-hmm. the abandoned um, mining uh, troughs that were used to dump all the waste. And, uh, the, you know, beautiful birds come there. And it might take another 50 or 100 years for the waters to be restored because of the mine poisons that were poured in it. But it is such an incredibly beautiful place. And I, I go there in the early mornings and... Uh, Whenever I want to just go someplace magical, Cross Lake, with all the old abandoned mines that are up in the hills, and and a lot of those mines now are bat sanctuaries. Yeah, interesting. So uh, that's what they've done. Uh, Agnico Eagle, the mining company here who's responsible for the liabilities, have done really great work trying to make these old sites safe with the sites that kids used to play in and mm-hmm. people sneak over the fences and rappel down the cliffs. But... Um, making it a batch sanctuary is, is, is pretty cool. So that's my favorite spot on the planet. 
Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. And can you tell us the name of the book again? The book is Cobalt, Cradle of the Demon Metals, Birth of a Mining Superpower. It's available everywhere. It's available everywhere. Yes. Awesome. Well, Charlie Angus, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Okay. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of Explore. Thank you so much for listening. And you can help these conversations reach a much wider audience by giving us a five-star rating and a nice review. It really does help, and we appreciate it. And of course, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can follow us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, at Cangio, and we're on Facebook as well. I'm on Twitter, at MacGuffinDavid, and on Instagram, at David.MacGuffin. Until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David MacGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We left Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, it means, it means that the new oral history is very strong. Yeah, we flew low over every inch of the country that could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 160. Well, I'm a first for Canada.